This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bhandari from OrthoEvidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Welcome to JBJS OrthoCore. Listen as members of the ortho community, residents, surgeons, educators, staff, and patients share their stories about the experiences and people most important in their lives and the lessons they learned along the way. OrthoCore is an audio archive inspired by StoryCorps and independently organized by the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Hello, this is Dr. Mark Swinkowski, JBJS Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here with Dr. Terry Joy, who has recently returned to the Twin Cities. Terry was the longstanding chief of orthopedics at the VA hospital, and he succeeded our dear friend and colleague, Dr. Ed McElfresh. Here we're going to discuss Dr. McElfresh's influence on Terry's career, as Terry was a partner with Dr. McElfresh in private practice prior to Dr. McElfresh becoming chief of orthopedics at the VA. Dr. McElfresh was a hand surgeon who led the VA Department of Orthopedic Surgery for a decade. He passed away more than 20 years ago. Terry, I know you've had a longstanding relationship with Ed way before I ever met him in his capacity as chief of orthopedics at the VA. Since you know him so well, I'd just like for you to just let our listeners know, how did, how did you meet uh, Ed? And what were your recollections of, of that meeting? Let me, uh, uh, first of all, Mark, let me just thank you for uh, you know offering me or affording me this opportunity to talk about Ed, who obviously I consider both a, a dear friend and a, uh, a significant mentor in my, my career. Um, it's really a pleasure. And as you and I were mentioning just before we started recording, it's it's hard for me to imagine that it's been over uh, 22 uh, years since uh, Ed passed away. So it's nice to look back and reflect on, on his uh, life and his uh, influences. Uh, my recollection, Mark, is that I met um, Ed uh, most likely, of course, I'm plumbing the depths of my own memory, most likely back in 1982. Because 1982 is when I joined the residency, and my recollection, uh, and I think this is, is accurate, is that Ed was part of the uh, interview uh, team okay. uh, for residency application at that point. And I, of course, I recall uh, interacting with him, but I don't recall that interaction specifically in uh, 1982. Now, um, that interaction became much more um, uh much more vigorous, uh, for lack of a better uh, term to use, uh, the following year. Because after my internship, which was all done uh, at the, in that era at uh, Hennepin County, uh, as a G2, I went to the VA. And Ed, I think, had been at the VA since roughly 75 mm. as hand surgery staff. I think actually the title was you know, Chief of Hand Surgery at the Minneapolis VA. 
And of course, while you were there as a G2, and I think as a G2, we went there for, we either went there for three or six months. I don't, my memory is failing me there, but uh, you would work with Ed closely while you were on the hand rotation. And, um, you know, even, even then he was an influence on me. And, uh, you know, of course, I'm sure we'll get into some of those anecdotes as well. But yeah, I would have said um, internship year in the interview and then G2 working with Ed closely uh, as a staff member. Yeah. And eventually you, you became one of Ed's partners, uh, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's correct. I mean, um, I, I would say the easiest way to explain that is uh, when I went through residency, I, I came to residency having done a fair amount of research and publication even before uh, coming to residency in the field of orthopedics. I was fortunate, this interview is not about me, but I was fortunate <laughs> enough to work with Merrill Ritter in the past and had done some publications and things like that. So it was obvious to me that I wanted to have some, I, I wanted a career that was not dissimilar from Merrill's in the sense that I wanted some sort of town gown connection. I wanted to have a private practice and I wanted to do adult reconstruction and I wanted to have a, a research base. I wanted to work with residents. I wanted to teach, et cetera. And at that point, uh, St. Anthony Orthopedic Clinic, which was Ed's private group, which was based in St. Paul, was I think either the largest or one of the two largest private practice groups. This was uh, <laughs> prior to the era now where the private <laughs> practice groups, you know, number 150 individuals. Yeah. But I think St. Anthony at that point had about 10 partners and three or four of those partners at the time had uh, part-time academic teaching appointments. Uh, Hap Luter did, Wayne Thompson, I think Vince Eilers was doing some stuff at maybe the uh, Shrine, et cetera. And so, um, and of course, Ed at, at the VA. And I was like, this is what I want. You know, I want to be in a private practice setting. I also want to be able to do uh, some sort of work. And Ed, uh, and I might add by extension, Mark Dahl, who was a few years ahead of me in the residency, and had joined uh, that same group a few years uh, before me, were instrumental in convincing me to go to that group because it's like, you know, we want you and this is what you want. And this is the kind of thing we do. And we value people in our group that also give back to the teaching profession. And it was just a, it was a wonderful fit for me. And, the, and then to have Ed uh, as my partner, as my partner in private practice, of course, was, uh, was really a blessing. Yeah. Now, you and I both know Ed was a character uh, in, <laughs> in the, in the, in the yes. strictest sense of the uh, term. So, what what are your recollections about some of the endearing qualities that uh, Ed had, say, outside of his abilities as a hand surgeon? Well, I tell you something. Um, you know, Ed was um, you know Ed was just a terrific person, and I'm sure any, anyone you would interview would would say the same thing about him. Um, I, I think one of the things that was most fascinating to me about Ed, and, and part of it is that we share some of those those qualities or characteristics is that uh, I think the, the common, and this was, again, let's recall that this was you know, 30, 40 or more years ago, the common perception at that point, I think, of orthopedic surgeons were you know, uh, the, the jock, the brash, confident individual, you know, I'm gonna, you broke the bone, I'm going to fix it type of thing. And Ed was the antithesis of that. You know, Ed was the, I always thought of Ed as almost um, British, in his uh, comportment, a, a very, a very dry wit, 
very quiet. Uh, if he was interacting with people, it was almost always uh, conciliatory. His communication skills were, you know, always about can we bring people together? It was never this, you know, my way or the highway type of thing. So uh, I, I think of him in, in that way. I think as far as um, I think as far as some of the things that were just uh, character-like about him, I, I think we'll discuss more when we talk about some of his interests, but he was, um, um, he, well, yeah, yeah, look, look, can I just go ahead and, and maybe course. talk about, yeah, let me let me go ahead and talk about some of, <laughs> uh, of Ed's interests, because I think they really play into uh, how he's commonly re remembered and commonly thought of. Um, to the point that I just made about his uh, reserve character and that sort of thing. This again may be more typical of hand surgeons in general, but Ed was um, uh, Ed loved books, as you know, and book collecting. Uh, Ed loved classical music, so you know it is just perhaps the almost uh, uh, stereotype of the hand surgeon with the loops and sitting quietly in a you know in the surgical suite. Uh, with classical lute music playing, you know, that sort of thing, that, that was Ed. And Ed's interest, uh, I, 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 who knows when, when it started, I'm sure well before medical school, but he published, I remember, a thesis in medical school on um, something to do with surgery in 18th century England. Uh, this was back when there was a thesis required in medical school. He went to uh, Nebraska for medical school. And um, Perhaps out of that, or perhaps out of some other underlying interest, one of his big great loves was collecting medical texts. Hmm. And we are fortunate, as you know, to have the McElfresh Library there at the university, which houses a lot of his collection. And so Ed um, was a huge medical book collector. And if he went to a meeting, and I, I was with him in many meetings, he would always seek out the antiquarian bookstore and be looking for some specific medical text, or maybe he had ordered it and it had come in at some bookstore in New Orleans or whatever. I think his, it was a huge pleasure for him to find other people who shared those kinds of interests and to pass those books along. And, you know, and in that sense, I have a couple of anecdotes. One is that for me personally, and this of course was um, before I had fully developed my career, but he knew I was interested in adult reconstruction. Uh, Ed gave me a first edition of Charnley's um, closed reduction of, uh, mm. of common fractures or, or closed treatment of common fractures, I think is the name of the book. It was a first edition. And he knew that would have special meaning to me because it was you know, done by Charnley. I talked to one of our friends and colleagues, uh, Anne Van Heest, about uh, her relationship to Ed. And she uh, reminded me that Ed had passed on um, a first edition of uh, Bunnell's uh, book on hand surgery to Anne uh, as an early faculty member at the university, of course, as a hand surgeon, and how meaningful that was to her. And the even more meaningful that Ed had passed it on to her with a note that um, he wanted her to have this because, um, because of Ed's disease, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Uh, he knew he wasn't going to be around forever. And he wanted to make sure that the books that he had, that he really treasured and really valued, were passed on to others who felt the same way about it. So, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't speak enough about how, how much Ed was into books. I think the other thing, and I'll, again, I'll touch on it briefly and we may circle back to it, but... I think the other thing, of course, that everyone recalls about Ed is what a um, what a gourmand 
Uh, he was. He was. Yes. He was absolutely um, a a foodie. I guess yeah. would be the term now. Before that term was popular, mm -hmm. and so uh, I joked. In fact, I used this line in Ed's uh, eulogy many years ago. I said, "If there was a New Delhi in mm -hmm. New Delhi, uh, you know, Ed would tell you about it." And so it was not uncommon at all for partners or even uh, folks who weren't partners to come up to Ed and say. Uh, hey, Ed, I'm going to be in St. Louis uh, next week. Is there any place I should check? Oh, St. Louis. Let me tell you about this barbecue joint that, you know, you know, and he, any, absolutely any city you could name, Ed would give you some recommendation about uh, where to go. So uh, again, I'm sure we'll expand on that more and I'll just leave it at that. But I, I would say those two things about book collecting and, um, and uh, his, uh, his interest in food and drink were, were just phenomenal. Yes, I, re I recall conversations with him when talking about which symposia to go to at the academy meeting, and he didn't want to talk about that at all. He wanted to talk about the list of restaurants he was going absolutely. to that week. Yeah, um, yeah. absolutely. I'll, I'll, share an I'll share one more anecdote in that regard. The, the very first academy that I went to in, as, a, as a private practice orthopedic surgeon, not as a resident, was in 1987, right after graduation for me. And that um, academy meeting was in San Francisco. And uh, Ed decided, I'm sure you've at least heard the name of this restaurant. It's, it's no longer in business, but it was huge for a period of time. Ed decided that we all needed to go to Masa's in San Francisco, which was a very high-end, very elite, uh, premier restaurant. Of course, I don't know the names of the chefs, but Ed would have probably knew them personally. And uh, he decided to take uh, a number of us, I think they were primarily partners, but maybe some other faculty members to Masa. Now, of course, this wasn't unfortunately on Ed's tab. We were all gonna split the tab. So I'm a brand new you know, orthopedic <laughs> surgeon. I'm, I'm on salary. I mean, you know, at this point for the first year in the practice and we go in and uh, mind you, this is 87. This is not, you know, 2022. And, you know, you start looking at the prices and you think, Wow, uh, my 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 share of this is going to be substantial, and then and then Ed brings out the wine list, and of course you know he's also a bonafide, so you know it's like okay, terrific, we're going to have a three hundred dollar bottle of wine, and I, I literally I think I think there were six or seven people there, and I think my share of the meal came to something like three or four hundred dollars, and I'm like okay, this is going to be a sort of expensive lifestyle if I always go out to eat with Ed. But, um, you know, it wasn't always about uh, that kind of dining for Ed. It was always about finding something unique and different. And I think he was very excited about going to Masa's because I think at that point it had been only open for a few years or something and it had quite the, quite the national reputation. So, yeah, I think the term Renaissance man is thrown around a little bit too frequently, but I, I think Ed would fall into that category. So I, I recall the first time I had a conversation, I, I was the chair of orthopedics at the time, but Ed was the head of VA and he sat down and basically after a few, you know, uh, side stories and trivial com conversation, he basically said, I have a congenital lung disease that's going to kill me. And I think uh, based on my um, uh, family tree and what's happened in my family. I've got a couple, three years. So you need to be start to be thinking about, uh, about my successor because I'm not going to be here. Right. Uh, and, uh, that was, uh, I, I'd never quite had an individual be so forthright and, and transparent, uh, and not emotional at all, just very sincere about what needed to, to, to happen. And 
What, what are your recollections about uh, Ed's uh, thinking about his disease and planning yeah. for his life, those are, the end of his life? Those are great, great questions, Mark. Um, you know, it's really interesting. Ed was the chief of the VA uh, between 1994 and 2000. And I'm sure you're probably aware of this or at least peripherally aware of it. But um, there were a few of us who always... Um, you know, who, who had been around when, of course, uh, Dr. Premer was the chief at the VA right. and knew how the position or, or knew at least how we felt <laughs> the position uh, should be handled and should uh, go forward, not necessarily to honor Bud's legacy, mm -hmm. uh, because clearly the VA needed to be you know, brought forward into a, a more modern way of functioning than it was during Bud's era. But knowing how the interaction with the residents and the patients occurred and the interaction with the university and this and that occurred, and those people included Ed, obviously, and myself and Dick Schmidt. Now, Ed and Dick were um, uh, both classmates and fraternity brothers at the University of Nebraska uh, in medical school before they came here. And Dick and I, of course, were good colleagues and good friends working as uh, working part time at the, the VA in that period of time when Ed was the chief. And so we actually had uh, discussions about sort of, uh, not that we had complete control over that, but we had sort of discussions about the a chain of succession mm -hmm. uh, when Edward to pass. And it's like, well, maybe Dick will take over. You're not ready to do that, Terry. And then maybe after Dick, Terry, you know, and that sort of thing. And of course, as you know, that's, that is indeed how it, how it evolved. One of the nice things, uh, which is almost, uh, it's serendipitous, but it's sort of interesting about Ed's time at the VA as the chief with his disease is that during the period of time that Ed was there, the department was remodeled and the offices uh, for the orthopedic surgeons, which were lovely at the time, actually were taken from patients' rooms. This was the transition, you know, the VA was a 900 bed inpatient hospital right. and transitioning to having, you know, 200 inpatients or whatever. Yeah. So they took a wing and not an entire wing, but a portion of a wing that were patient rooms and made them into orthopedic staff offices. And of course it had a large one, but the beauty of that is it had its own bathroom and more importantly, it had its own oxygen source. So, <laughs> so you know, Ed had this office. I mean, not that you couldn't do that with portable mm -hmm. oxygen, but Ed had this office where, you know, there was oxygen basically in the wall. <laughs> and so uh, a couple of things that I remember. One is that um, Ed was a very uh, proud individual mm -hmm. and didn't want to didn't want to dwell on any aspect of his uh, infirmity. And so the, although it was suggested many times, gee, Dr. McElfresh will meet you at the door to the hospital and you know, wheel you up to your office or whatever, so you don't have to expend the energy to get there with your pulmonary disease. No, he, he would not hear of that. And it took him some time, but he would get to his office and you know, there would be oxygen and this and that. And I remember him never wanting to make a big deal out of that. Um, I think the biggest thing to me about Ed's disease, when I reflect on it, is um, is the actual end. And I, you know, I hope I can get through this portion without being emotional. Um, one of Ed's uh, greatest honors, and I know you you can understand this because uh, you've been uh, around for much of this. One of Ed's greatest honors, and there were many honors, was that he was named Teacher of the Year by the Orthopedic uh, Residents in 1998. And in uh, 2000, um, I was fortunate enough to be main, named Teacher of the Year. Mm -hmm. 
And that award was given at the graduation banquet as I believe it still typically is. And uh, Ed was there. Ed was present at that uh, 2000 graduation uh, when I was awarded teacher of the year and I gave up and I got up and gave a short speech and I credited Ed and many other of my mentors, et cetera. And uh, the irony of that, Mark, is that while we were there, it was actually as the meeting was breaking up, Ed wore a pager specifically for this. He got a page from the university saying, we, you know, we've got a donor. We've got your lung transplant donor. Uh, get over here to the university. So uh, Ed got to see me uh, receive the Teacher of the Year Award, which was incredibly meaningful to him and, of course, to me as well. Then he went into the hospital to get his lung transplant um, and didn't emerge. Uh, yeah. I mean, ultimately didn't emerge. And it was, um, it was so... Uh, it was so um, nasty, brutish, and short, as they say about life, in the sense that there was a period of time after he received the transplant where Ed looked as good as yeah. I had ever seen him for the last two or three years. I would go yeah. visit him. He was chipper. He was, you know, it's like, wow, Ed, you look terrific. This is yeah. going to be great. I can't wait. And then, as you know, complications ensued, hepatitis C, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And unfortunately, he, he never left the hospital. But I will always remember... Um, remember just the confluence of those events between mm -hmm. him being so proud of me that someone that he considered a mentee and I consider a mentor had also gotten the same award that he had gotten. And then the, the tragedy of leaving that evening uh, with so much promise, the promise of the transplant, but it, of course not, not ultimately working out. Yes, what a wonderful, wonderful man. But yeah. in closing, what, what do you think, um, Ed would prefer, or how, how do you think Ed would prefer to be remembered as a person who knew him as well as uh, anyone? Well, I think, uh, I, you know, I have so many more anecdotes we could share yeah. about Ed, but, but let me just say that I think that one of the ways Ed would want to be remembered, besides the things we've talked about, I mean, I, he, you know, he took pride in the fact that he was a bibliophile, that he mm. um, enjoyed books, et cetera. I, I remember, sorry, this is an aside. I remember that um, one of the great lines that I had, had told him about or I used on him, and I think I used it at the point where we um, dedicated the Macrofresh Library, is there's this great um, Groucho Marx quote that is, um, outside of a dog, books are man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. <laughs> and I, re I remember telling Ed that once because I knew he would appreciate it. And he just thought like, you know, that is like the, the greatest quote. So, I, I mean, I know he would want to be remembered as a bibliophile. I think he'd want to be remembered uh, for, um, you know, some of the other uh, hobbies and interests he had, like the, the gourmand stuff that we talked about. But I think at, when we think about him as a partner, the most endearing thing was really his communication skills. Hmm. He was so low key and so wonderful. And as as partners, we would sometimes joke with him about uh, the, the complications that he would describe to patients as potential outcomes. Mm -hmm. and, and, and again, just to make a, a point on this, Ed would talk about carpal tunnel release with a patient and, you know, death, you know, potential death would be one of the complications. You know, you have to understand there's anesthetic and, you know, you're like, gosh, I don't think this is going to happen with a carpal tunnel, but I guess for completeness sake, Ed wants to really make sure he's complete. And he was always so um, 
so thorough. I remember uh, back in uh, one of Ed's big research interests was um, Dupuytren's contracture. Hmm. And Ed uh, utilized a technique that I don't, I don't believe he developed. It was known as the McCash technique, but he certainly popularized it because we had a large population of World War II veterans with Dupuytrens at that point. The so-called McCash technique where you would have open, open uh, incisions in the palm mm. and they would heal by secondary intention. Mm. You would splint them, you would splint these patients and then they had to do daily dressing changes. And these are World War II veterans. And so they'd have to be taught how to do these dressing changes on these open wounds in their hand. The success rate was phenomenal. And part of that was Ed explaining to patients very precisely how they have to do this. And they, they worked with occupational therapists, et cetera. It was terrific. I also remember one of his um, PAs told me about a story where Ed, in addition to his uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, had rosacea. And uh, she told me about a, an anecdote where Ed was explaining to a mother and a child something about a, an osteotomy to correct a uh, deformity that had occurred as a result of a both bone forearm fracture or something. And so he's going through all of this with the child and he turns to the child, the child was, I guess, 10 or 12. And, you know, he's going to also ask the parent, but it's like, do you have any questions, Johnny, about, you know, what we're going to do? And the kid said, what are those red spots on your face? <laughs> Which of course was, you know, Ed's rosacea. And Ed just very calmly sat down, you know, explained rosacea, why I have these red spots, red spots on my face. So that was it. He was, he was calm. He could explain anything to anyone. He took his time. It wasn't, I've got my hand on the doorknob as soon as I walk in the door to walk out the door, sit down, let me explain to this child my dermatologic condition. <laughs> Uh, which you can imagine nowadays wouldn't fly. Um, yeah, it was his communication skills were, were second to none. I've got to tell one last anecdote, and it's one that Anne passed on to me, and one that after she mentioned it, uh, Anne Van Heest, after she mentioned it, I recall as well. And that was that uh, Ed always thought it was very important to operate with both hands, that you'd be able to not be truly ambidextrous, that, but you have the ability to use both hands in surgery. And Anne said that before she rotated with him, she had heard about this tendency of Dr. McElfresh's from other residents. Mm -hmm. So the first case that she did with Ed, before he said anything, she made a point of picking, she's right-handed, she made a point of picking up the scalpel with the left hand to do something with it and do something else with the left hand. And then he you know, commented on it and praised her. And after that, their friendship was cemented. You know, it's like, you want to be a hand surgeon and you can operate with your left hand, you're in, you know, it was great. So, um, we could speak, I know, for, yeah. for some time about uh, Ed's uh, qualities and endearments, but um, yeah, it's just been, it, it's been a lot of fun for me to recall some of those stories and recall the influence he had, he had on my own life, too. I, I, really, I really relish the opportunity. Yeah, well, thanks very much, Terry, for giving the listening audience a, a great sense of a, a wonderful, true Renaissance man that uh, we all knew and loved and um, have great recollection of uh, what he meant to us. And I think this will uh, help people who didn't know him quite so well really understand the sense of a really wonderful Scotsman. Yeah, well, that, that's great. I, I remember yeah. when we set this up, you said, well, it'll, it'll go about 15 minutes, depending on how much fun we have. So it's probably <laughs> gone over 15 minutes, but, but regardless, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure again. Thanks so much, Mark. Yeah. Take care. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. 
To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.